Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to the Daily Sun Up with the Colorado Sun. It's Wednesday, December 27th. For the holiday week, we are replaying some of our top episodes from 2023. This year, we hosted our inaugural Sunfest, and one of our dozens of speakers was Governor Jared Polis. The second-term governor hit on a number of issues facing Colorado, from the housing crisis to school funding to the Colorado River. Before we begin, a quick thank you to our members, who make it possible for the Colorado Sun to bring you your news about our beautiful, complex state. If you aren't yet a member, consider joining now to support local journalism and gain access to member newsletters. Start your membership today at coloradosun.com join. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1858, prospectors celebrated St. John the Evangelist's Feast Day, a key Masonic event at a cabin in what is now downtown Denver. While less known today, Freemasonry was a not-so-secret society known for its pageantry, social, and economic functions that flourished in the 19th century. This event marked a significant moment for the local Masonic fraternity. The Grand Master of the Kansas Territory lauded Freemasonry's expansion into the Pikes Peak Gold Rush region, and a few months later, the first Masonic temple in Colorado was built in Central City. When Colorado became a separate territory in 1861, Methodist minister John Shivington was named Grand Master. Over the next few decades, Masons became key political and business figures in Colorado, and they built a sandstone temple in Denver, which remains a beautiful and prominent feature on the 16th Street Mall. Before we continue, did you know the Colorado Sun has a mobile app? Get all of your Colorado news, whether you're in the car heading to holiday festivities or sitting on your couch enjoying your coffee. The app brings you everything from the sun right to your mobile device. Learn more at coloradosun.com app. Next, our feature story. All right, well, let's jump into one of your big policy priorities at the Capitol this year and, and probably next year, affordable housing. Your land use bill failed at the Capitol this year. I wonder if you plan on bringing a similar measure this year, and what changes do you think that you're going to make to get it passed this time around? Well, as I travel across the state, I just was in Fort Collins yesterday for a town hall. I've done big town halls in Grand Junction and Pueblo, Aurora. Uh, housing uh, costs are popping even more than before as the existential issue that Coloradans face. Uh, I think the reason they're, uh, it's become even more urgent is because of the cost of financing and mortgages has increased substantially since when uh, we asked the legislature to uh, look at measures to uh, make housing uh, more affordable in our state. So I think there's a lot more interest out there. The crisis has become worse. Uh, what we're hearing from a lot of people is they want to go a lot bigger and bolder than years past uh, and really figure out how we can remove some of those artificial constraints on supply and allow more housing to be built, bring housing costs down. Just this morning, I was visiting an accessory dwelling unit with uh, Senator Gonzalez and Habitat for Humanity in West Denver. Great example, longtime homeowner. Uh, and uh, he added, and I didn't, I'd never seen one before. He added a three-bedroom accessory dwelling unit. A lot of them are one or two-bedroom. There's a three-bedroom. So in the community, it's more affordable. It'll be a rental unit, provides income for him, which helps because, right, his property taxes has gone up like everybody's, although with Prop HH, he could see some relief, but they're still going up. Uh, and provides an affordable way to live close to where jobs are. That's what we need more of. That's what we need a lot more of. Um, and we're focused on working with Republicans, Democrats, the legislature, all stakeholders to uh, solve this issue. It'll only get worse until we grapple but with like, it. But what about specific policy ideas? I mean, if you double down on well, the idea that didn't work. There's last no year. silver bullet. I mean, I think, as I said, what we're hearing from a lot of people in the field is that 
a lot of the things in 213 didn't go far enough. It really needs to think bigger and bolder. Uh, you need to look at transit. You need to look at transit plan development. I mean, there are different things in the bill at different times. I think there's going to be many bills on housing, uh, on, on removing artificial constraints on housing. I mean, we it's the top thing we hear everywhere we go. It's probably the top thing if, if, any, if most people here in this room or your friends or family are experiencing right now in some way, shape, or form is you're grappling with the high cost of housing. It's important because people need a roof over their head, but it's also important economically to our success as a state because the high cost of housing is strangling our success as a state. This is most pronounced in the mountain resort areas uh, where, you know, literally you'll have, you know, stores, restaurants that close two, three days a week, missing out on sales. The demand is there, but they can't have the staff to do it. But in the Denver metro area with homes over $600,000, average price, mortgage rates much higher than they were before. Uh, you know, this is the time for everybody to put their ideas on the table and for, for the legislature and us and uh, all the stakeholders to really think big about how we can change this trajectory to avoid Colorado becoming California. It's not too late. So one of the bills that's on the table or coming on the table would be a construction defects change, right? So an idea to make... Uh, to reduce reduce the amount of litigation that condo builders face in particular. I know there's a couple state lawmakers who are looking at that. Are you part of those conversations? Is that something that you would be interested in? Well, look, our our um, our approach is going to be very simple. Anything that will reduce housing costs, we're for. That will reduce housing costs, especially it'll help build more condos, which tend to be more affordable. Of course, we're supportive of that. We're supportive of any measure uh, that legislators can put forward that reduce housing costs, and the flip side of that, opposed to measures that would increase housing costs for Coloradans. That's the lens that we look at every bill that relates in some way to housing, even if it's one or two steps tangential to it, it absolutely could impact the cost of housing. And we're going to look at it through that lens because the people of Colorado want to make sure that we make housing more affordable, not less affordable. Okay, so on the flip side of that, though, there are some Democrats in the legislature who kind of bristle at the idea of construction defects reform because they're worried about protecting purchasers, you know, from potential construction defects that they might face in the condo that they're buying. So, how do you find that balance in your in your mind? Well, I mean, that's what the lawmaking process does. Uh, I think, obviously, again, if you can reduce the cost of insurance for some of these projects and allow more condos to be built, I think what we're hearing is often apartments for rent are built in lieu of condos because of liability issues. Obviously, the bigger problem is a lot of areas aren't allowing these units to be built at all, whether they're apartments or condos, and that's why we need to talk about the permitting and the land use. But assuming that one's, a, one's built, uh, we do like condos. Why? Because of ownership and, and the pathway to the American middle class and how you build wealth is ownership. Of course, rent is fine. People need a roof over their head. But we really want to transform renters into owners. We need more inventory that people can afford to buy, units in the 200s to 300,000s. That's what's missing in our market. And by our market, I mean the greater Denver market, the greater Colorado Springs market, the greater Grand Junction market. Uh, and uh, yes, of course, we're fine with rental units, not against them, but really passionate about home ownership uh, as a way that people can achieve the American dream and build uh, equity and value over their lives intergenerationally, especially people from disadvantaged backgrounds that don't have that legacy of home ownership. So you talked a little bit about the idea of transit and transportation around home ownership. Uh, Call it a public radio reported recently that you want to see a 2024 ballot measure raising taxes to form a front range passenger rail system. 
Is that something that you envision the legislature referring to the ballot? Um, and how much do you think the tax increase would be and for how long are you guys working out those details? Well, what you're talking about is something that the legislature does not need to do. This is a Front Range Rail District already created. Uh, they were created with a specific purpose of coming up with a plan for Front Range Rail. Front Range Rail is something that I'm very impatient on. Um, I, you know, this is something we should have had 10 years ago. I'm like more than mad. Uh, it's not something that we should be talking about for like 20 years from now. We should We should either you know, get our business done or get off the pot. Like, let's do this thing. So, yes, uh, we need Front Range Rail. We're a growing community, 3 million people in the Front Range, four columns through Pueblo. Um, it's part of that overall solution. If we can provide a rail solution, and I think we can, that gets people where they want to go faster and lower cost than driving, people will take advantage of it. So we're talking about rail, you know, 80 miles an hour or so. Yes, it'll get you to your destination faster. You know, four columns of Denver, 40, 45 minutes. Colorado Springs to Denver, you know, under an hour, uh, no traffic. And then the question is cost. Uh, and of course, the reason this is more possible than ever before is because of the unprecedented federal opportunities for matching funds under the Infrastructure Act. And we are very aggressive in courting those funds. We are also looking at rail as a solution to the ski corridor as well to alleviate some of that traffic off of 70. So rail isn't everything, but rail is something. Uh, and for areas that have... Um, Passenger rail uh, with wide utilization absolutely helps get cars off the road. Cleaner air reduces congestion, convenient to people, and saves money. Okay, so we know about front-range passenger rail. You mentioned mountain rail. Is that something doable within your the next three years before you leave office? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very impatient. It was doable five years ago. Um, How do you do it, though? So what you have um, in, in the mountains, um, first of all, in Hayden and Craig, with the closure of the coal plants, 29, but also scaling back starting 25, 26. You have additional rail capacity on some of those lines. Uh, you have built-in demand. We know that's strong. Uh, and so the most viable rail corridor that, of course, we're looking at is uh, a rail solution from Denver to Steamboat to Winter Park, also for workers, Hayden and Craig, into the mountain communities that need workers, ties into housing. So this is all important. When we look at the Denver metro area, though, we, we do tie it to the housing solution because when you look at areas that have successfully implemented transit, rail solutions, of course, bus and other forms of transit too, you have to look at transit plan communities. How can people live near where they can commute to job centers? And so you have to make sure that those areas are allowing for and empowered to do multifamily uh, uh, capacity where, where you have the, the, the customer base built in that wants to avail themselves of the transit options. And that provides the economy of scale you need that reduces cost for the transit option and makes it viable. So the two really go hand in hand. Okay. As the skier and the train geek, though, I want to, as like, do you think there's going to be a mountain rail bill this year? A mountain rail bill? Um, well, so, so yeah, I don't know what needs bills and what doesn't. I mean, we, the front range one, I believe is all, I believe is all done legislative. Maybe, maybe there needs to be something else or there's some state participation and funding, but, but the mechanism is already there. Um, I think there's a discussion of uh, what, a ma what mountain rail would look like. Um, again, I, I think it's premature to say, does there need to be a bill? Does it need to be a bunch of local governments you know, forming a consortium? There's different ways of doing that. Uh, but the bottom line is this is viable. Um, uh, we just, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, we were in Pueblo at uh, the Pueblo Rail Yard. Uh, and we were on a uh, natural gas-powered train, uh, which is going to California. But as you know, we test a lot of the rails here in, in Pueblo before they continue on. 
And uh, it was exciting. We took a ride with members of the media. I assume you were invited. I assume I was not invited. You must have been invited. I went far and wide. It's kind of sad now. Everybody except for the sun was invited. Maybe no. someone else at the sun. Um, you'll bet. We it was a it was a good opportunity with with a number of members of the public and the media was there too, just to kind of experience what that was like. Uh, and we will be looking at those kinds of technology opportunities. Um, what you know, when people say rail, people like it. The only thing you ever hear negative about rail. You can tell me if you're anything different. Is either it's loud or it smells. Those are the only two things I ever hear that are negative. Guess what? If you use electric batteries or natural gas, totally quiet, doesn't smell. So if we can address those two things, I think everybody's on board with rail. Choo choo. I, th- I think folks in Fort Collins who have to wait in traffic might feel differently, but that that's a conversation for. Well, because the, the noise, because the noise, right? Well, part the long waits and and well, we don't have enough time to go. Into that. Well, also, also that's not passenger, right? Those are those, those are really free. long freight trains. So yeah, passengers uh, a lot more pleasant to be that's around. True. All right, let's delve into water because we're going to hit like a million topics. Um, the legislature created the, the Colorado River Water Task Force this year, uh, and there was some reporting that your office kind of prompted that, where the legislature wanted to go further and pass some legislation. Do you think like this will be the year that water legislation is passed? That they punted in twenty twenty three to twenty four with this task force, are, are you committed to getting something done in 24? Well, I, I think there's been some water legislation every year that I've been governor, so I think it depends what you're, you're looking at. We've made great progress in funding water projects, first of all, including using one-time funds. Uh, we also now rather urgently have to deal with the Supreme Court overturning the waters of the U.S. rule, so we have a stopgap or administering uh, things, uh, but we need a legislative law around what has now been turned over to the states. Uh, so that's going to happen. Uh, we continue the work on the basin discussions, um, uh, and we have, of course, uh, elevated the Colorado River Basin discussion, which now, um, as you know, is, is showing increased federal interest in a solution, and, and we've upped our game on preparing for making sure we defend Colorado's water rights aggressively. What about, is there any, I know you have this like libertarian street, but is there any role for the state to limit, for instance, certain kind of crops from being grown or a percentage or um, is, is that a potential way to, to deal with the water scarcity crisis? Um, not, no. I mean, certainly what, what, what one offer that one thing that we've talked about is if we can figure out housing, that also helps fix water. So just two days ago, I was in Westminster at ribbon cutting. As I tell my kids, I'm, one thing about this job, I get really good at using scissors like really good. Um, I'll challenge any of you to a scissor off any day of the week. So I got a, you know, a couple of ribbon cuttings a week. So um, this was 2,500 units uh, and they really thoughtful development in Westminster. Uh, they including open space and um, bike lanes and, 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 you know, mixture of affordability and market rate. But the point is those units are about two to three times as water efficient for, for their new residences legacy residents and existing housing there. So a lot of the housing we're talking about allowing to be built and bringing on board, whether it's accessory dwelling units, multifamily, duplexes, is far more water efficient. And that's exactly what we need. I also did an executive order around state lands and uh, uh, our you know lawns and things like that. So we're trying to get rid of, if you will, uh, our features uh, that need water for turf, aggressively working to phase those out over the next few years to model that. City of Aurora put some strong water measures in place. Um, so we're not done. We're very excited to tackle this, but I'd say the single biggest one that is out there is housing. Uh, and we look forward to really aligning the water conservation needs of the state with our state housing policy. 
But respectfully, residential water use is such a small fraction. A 20%. Right. I mean, agriculture is the other 80, right? So, I mean, don't you have to tackle the agricultural side of things? You can't just, you know, multi-unit housing your way out of the water crisis that we have. Well, in many ways, it's our fastest growing. So the challenge you face is as our population grows, you face buy and dry uh, you face fast-growing suburbs buying up water rights from farmers, leaving it leading to dry land agriculture. We want to preserve not only our agricultural heritage, but our single biggest export is a state uh, ag products grown in Colorado, raised in Colorado. Uh, that being said, we do have new programs at the Department of Agriculture around soil health and stewardship, around agrivoltaics, which is co-production, which has uh, water efficiency gains because it uses the partial shading of the, uh, the, the panels. So there's a number of technologies and ways that we're looking at supporting through our Department of Ag, uh, farmers and ranchers being part of that water solution as well. All right, let's talk about Proposition HH, the 10-year property tax relief measure on the November ballot. It's clear that education groups see this as a way to boost funding for education by increasing the Tabor cap. I don't have time to explain what Tabor is, but hopefully folks in the room know what it is. I wonder if that was really one of your goals with this proposal. Republicans are critical in saying, look, this is a proper, this is a school funding measure dressed up as a property tax measure. Did you have schools in mind when you, when you put this together? Well, uh, you know, really what I challenged the legislature to do was three things. Uh, one, provide immediate relief to homeowners because of the uh, significant increases in property tax assessments. Number two, provide a mechanism to prevent uh, tax rates for homeowners from going up too fast in the future. And third, address some of the inequities of the Gallagher Amendment, which put too much of the burden on our businesses. The business rates are much higher. We're 49th lowest for home property taxes. That's wonderful. We want to keep us there. We need relief. But we're like 24th for businesses. So that is a detriment to job creation. When businesses save money on property taxes, they can put it into salaries and growth and hiring. It helps companies choose to make siting decisions in Colorado. So those are the three things that I'm in it for. It does all three, about five, $600 a year in uh, savings for average homeowner. Obviously, depends on the person, some 400 some 800 whatever it is. Uh, the truth in taxation cap, which um, is the default, only allows it to go up by the rate of CPI unless voted on by the democratically elected officials in the area. And then third, a substantial cut to uh, the commercial property tax rate. So those are the things that I'm excited about. But I, let me ask the question again. Did, did you have school funding in mind with, with this? I mean, are you hopeful that this will boost school funding? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's good for the budget in general. It, uh, it does other things that I like. For instance, it allows the portability of the senior homestead exemption. We have seniors today that live in homes where if they downsize, they pay more on property taxes, which makes no sense in the world. So literally, you have a senior living in a three-bedroom home if they downsize to one bedroom, they pay more. It makes no sense. So let's change that. So yeah, there's plenty of other things in it. But I told you the three things that I charge the legislature with that um, that I'm for, and this solves for all three of those. Uh, cuts provides immediate relief for property taxes. Will prevent them from going up too fast in the future, and cuts the commercial rate to make Colorado businesses more competitive and helps up help people pay more better salaries and hire more people. All right. Well, as you know, it's not a given that it will pass. And I wonder, you know, if you're planning for contingencies. I, I think I asked this at a press conference and I got laughed at. So maybe I'll ask again. What happens if, if this doesn't pass? Do you call a special session and just, you know, make a, a flat rate cut? Uh, do you said, do you have an alternative in mind? Are you guys thinking? Uh, the issue of property taxes doesn't go away. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm somewhat mystified by some of those who 
say they're voting against this because they say it's not perfect. Well, I say, well, we'll, we'll vote for it because it's a step in the right direction. And obviously, it doesn't mean you can't do anything else about property taxes in the future. There's lots of ideas about how we can prevent property taxes from growing too fast and uh, happy to talk about other options. You know, whether this passes or fails, uh, I think there's a lot of discussions about property tax. But again, my core values are you got to provide relief. You got to prevent rates from going up in the future. And you got to uh, rebalance in terms of making it less onerous on small businesses in Colorado who uh, we have, you know, we're, we're in the top 50% of states versus being the 49th state lowest for home. All right. The legislature for years has had this discussion on property taxes about how to handle short-term rentals. It seems to come up every year and people get yelled at, people show up at the Capitol. Do you support changing or increasing the rate, uh, property tax assessment rate for short-term rentals? So, yeah, that's that's simpler in a sense. This is in some ways a loophole. So here's what you have. You have short-term rental properties owned by commercial owners that are basically competing with bed and breakfasts, inns, lodges, hotels. They do the same business. Somebody shopping, they say, I'm going to say a bed and breakfast. I'll say it in Airbnb. We're talking about full-term rental properties. Uh, and yet, they have a very disparate tax treatment. And so, yes, the tax treatment should be uniform. Absolutely. If it's a commercial property, if you're running it as a, uh, a, a short-term rental, uh, it should be treated just like Airbnbs and other properties that you compete with. We shouldn't be subsidizing um, that vis-a-vis other legitimate businesses. Do you have like a threshold? I know there's been discussed, like how many days in a year would a property have to be a short-term right. rental? Right. So, so the flip side of it is, and I agree with this too, you know, yes, you own a home, you're gone for two weeks, you want to rent it out. That doesn't mean you're a commercial property. I totally agree with that too. So I, I totally think that there's a way to come up with a reasonable threshold. I think what you're talking about here are bonafide commercial properties competing with bed and breakfast and hotels. That's different than your uh, owner occupancy you know, you're gone for two or three weeks a year, you decide to get a little income. No, that's still residential. So I, I don't think it's that hard. And I'm open to any reasonable discussion about what that is. Maybe it's a cut off at 90 days of rental. Maybe it's, um, you know, they talk at the beauty, the economic economists in any of us would say, oh, let's make it prorated. So it's perfect economically. But that's just so much paperwork for everybody. Like, I'm fine with it philosophically, but in the real world it doesn't work out that well. So you probably just want to have some cutoff that's reasonable 60 days, 90 days, 100 days, something like that. Okay. Obviously, reasonable in politics doesn't always go well together. Um, so in the last couple of minutes here, I want to kind of get to uh, just a few topics. We'll just hit them quickly. Legislature is set to debate a measure again that would uh, pave the way for so-called overdose prevention centers, safe use sites. Uh, you've expressed opposition to the past. Do you think there's any way that that bill could be written in a way that gets your support? Well, I think that this has become a much the, the, the problem. Well, this is a multifaceted issue here. So I think you're, we're talking about homelessness, drug abuse, and mental health as contributors to homelessness, um, you know, how cities deal with that. Cities do have broad discretion under current law not to uh, nullify our drug laws, of course, and I do oppose their ability to nullify our state and federal drug laws, but they do have broad discretion around where and how they, they deal with shelter. It's a big issue in Denver right now. Um, the state has positioned ourselves as a partner. We want to help you know, Denver, Aurora, Colorado Springs, Boulder, Fort Collins, every city that addresses this. Uh, and we do, meaning we just have some funding open now. Cities are competing for it. Uh, we want to help with, we're not going to create the solution. We can't because it has to be on the ground and tie into what you're doing locally. But I do support efforts to uh, end homelessness, reduce homelessness, make Colorado safer. And uh, we look forward to the state being a partner with our mayors in doing that. Okay. Is that a no? I mean, to, to a site where people could 
um, use drugs under the supervision of trained professionals who could provide them in an overdose situation. No, look, I mean, I've, I've certainly been in favor, as you know, of legalizing marijuana. Um, there's, you know, other areas that we can look at uh, liberalizing the drug law, but those areas do not include fentanyl and meth, which are the main culprits uh, in this case and have absolutely devastating impacts. If anybody's have a loved one or friend who's had trouble with them, uh, we absolutely need to use diversion and other ways to get people into treatment uh, so that they can recover their dignity in their lives. All right. Uh, assault weapons ban or a sale, a ban on the sale of assault weapons in Colorado, a bill was brought and didn't make it through in the legislature. If that landed on your desk, how would you? Well, you know, a lot of the whole discussion around gun safety um, is now under the framework of the Brewer just Bruin decision. Um, so it's a little bit different legal context. As you currently, you probably know, well, you reported on it, even our increasing the age limit uh, is not in force right now. Um, and um, our three-day waiting period is, is going in. We'll see if that lasts. today. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how the court docket on that. This is a tough fight on everything, but I mean, we, we, we have not yet even succeeded in being able to raise the age limit to 21. Currently in Colorado, and this is the case now because our law is temporarily not in effect, we hope temporarily, uh, at 18 you can buy a rifle, but you have to be 21 to buy a pistol. And that's the way it's been for decades. So why do we have different... I don't know why you should have different ages for different categories of weapon. Um, if anything, some of these rifles are actually more powerful than pistols, but I mean, we don't need to get into that argument. But 18 for a rifle, 21 for a pistol. We just said 21 for both, whatever the kind of weapon is. Um, gun safety is part of the overall discussion on public safety. Um, we've got a, our goal, we expressed, we want to make Colorado one of the 10 safest states. We're a year into that. Uh, I expressed that this will be a big focus of ours for the next term. You'll see uh, the budget that we'll be presenting in November, public safety forward, reducing auto theft, going after uh, crime, victim services. Uh, Colorado needs to be safer. And we will look at all policies that help get us there. And that would include looking at gun safety policies, especially those that we think are going to be defensible in court. All right, you got to run, but I want to give you kind of a softball and in, in, in the in the idea of SunFest, our slogan here is for a better Colorado. And I wonder just if you can talk about what a better Colorado means to you as, as the leader of our state. I think a better Colorado means two big things. And you're not going to be shocked by what I say. It means it needs to be more affordable and safer. And those are the two themes that color the actions that I take as governor. It needs to be safer, lower crime, uh, lower property theft. Uh, people need to be safe walking in the store at night in their neighborhoods. Uh, these encampments and drug paraphernalia. Uh, should not be part of a safe Colorado, bike theft, all those things. Um, more affordable Colorado. We're, we're in it for all the big costs people face. Uh, and top costs for people, guess what? Housing. After that, healthcare. So saving people money in healthcare, the work continues, priority for me, passion for me, and housing, 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 housing. We've got to save people money in housing. We've got to facilitate the development of more housing that people can afford, close to where jobs are, make sure that we can uh, break down barriers to home ownership. Uh, all of those things that we need to do uh, are what we need to do to make Colorado better. Affordability, safety, and I would add sustainability as a third. Awesome. Thank you so much, Governor. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jesse. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Governor Jared Polis has issued full pardons for 21 people and cut short the sentences of seven others, including a man who was convicted of first-degree murder. David R. Carrillo, 49, was part of a group of teens convicted in the fatal June 28, 1993 shooting of 17-year-old Chris Romo in Pueblo. Carrillo was 19 at the time of the shooting. 
He didn't pull the trigger, but he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the role he played in the killing, which authorities said was gang-related. He will be eligible for parole January 31st. Colorado beef producers could receive USDA loans and loan guarantees to modernize and expand small to medium-sized meat processing and rendering plants under a federal bill co-sponsored by Senator Michael Bennett. The Colorado Cattlemen's Association says the state is home to 13,000 beef cattle producers and 206 feedlots, all of which are served by 24 USDA-certified slaughter plants. According to the CCA, Colorado is the fourth-largest exporter of fresh and frozen beef in the United States, with the export market worth over $1 billion. The former owner of two central Colorado funeral homes has been sentenced to a year of probation after pleading guilty to charges that her funeral home included the cremated remains of an adult when it gave the ashes of a stillborn boy to his parents in December 2019. The Summit Daily reported that Stacy Kent was also fined $5,000 when she was sentenced earlier this month. Kent and her husband, former Lake County Coroner Shannon Kent, were charged with unlawful acts of cremation related to their funeral home in Leadville. They also owned a funeral home in Silverthorne. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And the Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. Right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member, starting at $5 per month for a basic membership, and if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our exclusive politics and outdoors newsletters. Thanks for starting your morning with us, and don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. Tomorrow.